He moves up higher in the rankings. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Hazan et haolam kulo betuva Bechen bechesed rakamim The soft seat to the seat of wisdom, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Praise God. Right. So it's uh, tomorrow is the first of Elul, and we start that uh, lovely opportunity of uh, and habit of uh, making sure that our slate is clean uh, with uh, each person, and uh, seeing if we need to make reparations there before we come before the King on Rosh Hashanah. This uh, portion, re-a, or re-a, and uh, there it is, Joshua. Thank you very much. Um, let's see what we've got here in the back. Sophia, what is your favorite food? I hope she says pizza. What do you like to eat? Cake. Cake. That's Cake. a great Good girl. I love that answer. Yes. Zoe, what do you like to eat? Cupcakes. There we go. Also a very good answer. What happens when you finish eating? What are we supposed to do? Bless God. Bless God. Very good. Very good. Now, are there some things we don't eat? Sophia, yes. what do we not? What's something we don't eat? Pig. Don't eat pig. Very good. Dirt. I don't eat dirt. Don't eat dirt either. <laughs> but what, what, what point is, though, is that God gave us cake and cupcakes. He gave us things that make us happy, that we enjoy. But when we're finished, we're supposed to bless God. And there are some things that we don't eat, like pork. Um, and I think in this week's Torah portion, the thing that I kept seeing over and over and over again is eating. There's a lot of eating going on in this Torah portion. There's a lot of rules that go along with eating. There's certain things you don't eat. There's certain, uh, there's certain parts of the animal you don't eat, like blood. Don't eat the blood. Uh, there's certain places you eat or don't eat. You eat the offerings in the temple, in the tabernacle area. Um, but you don't eat them elsewhere. You, uh, there's also certain people you eat with. Make sure you invite the Levites to come and have, you know, this part of the party with you. Um, there's certain things you eat with the tithe. You take the tithe in, uh, if you, if you're too far away and you can't bring it all the way to Jerusalem because it would spoil, you would sell it for money and then you go to Jerusalem and you buy something. It says whatever your heart desires. In fact, that phrase or something similar to it shows up, I think, at least three times in this portion. Once talking about eating meat, um, twice talking about eating meat, actually, and then once talking about the festival of Sukkot and eating um, something there. And we don't eat the blood. Right, we don't eat the blood. And so, yes, Sophia? Can you talk louder? 
Right. Very good. Yes. You're right. And so we're supposed to share. So when we talk about eating, we're supposed to share what we have with the people. And a lot of, a lot of what to talk about in this portion is sharing food. Um, being generous. Absolutely. So you see all of these rules that have to do with eating. And I, I mentioned this last week, um, or last Tuesday, I should say, during the men's class, talking about eating. Um, Ecclesiastes makes a big deal about it. Um, Solomon had decided that the, the, that the uh, basically you serve God and you eat well. That's pretty much the point of life. Um, my wife agrees. Um, we do enjoy eating well. It's a fun thing to do. Um, but I think this thing is so important to me, that the lesson that I'm getting from this is that the physical world is not bad, but it has to be used the right way. So the mistake that we get from so many in the religious world is that everything you see is, is bad. You don't want to, you don't want to dress too nicely. You don't want to eat good food. You should eat, you know, the bare minimum or maybe not eat at all if possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe only eat once a week if you can, if you can help it. Go at least, four, you know, every, every year, go at least 40 days without eating um, or something, uh, you know. But there are times we don't eat, you know, Yom Kippur, it's time we don't eat. But at the same time, um, God, I think, gave us the world that we live in to be enjoyed. But the opposite mistake can also be made. You have hedonists who basically say, eat whatever you want all the time, doesn't matter. There are no rules. All that matters is that you're happy. Doesn't God want you to be happy? <laughs> you know, God doesn't really care about your happiness so much. God really wants you to obey him. And when you do that, part of that is using the creation around you Amen. and using it to his glory. And when you, um, you fulfill those mitzvot, those commandments, the, the blessing God after you eat, like we did this a little while ago, or eating the right things, not eating the wrong things, or eating them in the right place, or, or sharing them with others, then you, um, you manage to elevate eating. When, uh, when you, one of the things that's, um, that, that Judaism talks about a lot is this idea of we as humans are sort of this interesting place in creation. Our, our physical bodies are very much like the animals around us. You know, they have needs. You need to eat. You need to sleep. You know, certain things your body needs to do. And because you have needs, your body tends to crave certain things. However, God has called us to be more than animals, to elevate that. But when you can elevate your you know, animal activities and make them holy by doing them the right way or by adding a mitzvah to them, then instead of being taken over by the physical or the, 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 the animalistic elements of this world, you, you end up um, sanctifying them and it's sort of like that passage in Romans, right? Don't, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So you end up bringing God into the, the mundane things. And then in Havdalah, we say, bless you, Lord our God, who, who separates between the holy and the common. But we get a chance to actually partner with God and elevate the common to become holy. And in that sense, we're almost like we're going back to that Garden of Eden experience where you know, God is sort of everywhere and he's not hidden like he is today. And that opportunity to, uh, to, to meet with God in the midst of those physical experiences. Um, they say that Isaac, Yitzhak, was especially good at this, that he had managed to um, bend his Yetzirah, his, 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 his uh, natural man, if you want to quote Paul. Physical inclination. Physical inclination, or evil inclination, depending how you look at it, because it can be used for evil, um, to serve God that he, he would use his appetite and other types of things specifically to serve God. 
And I think that that's, it's like Paul, right? Whatever you eat, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, and so that's this opportunity. So this Torah portion talks about that quite a bit. All of the different ways that you can use your physical things in your life to, to serve Shem. And anyone besides Sophia is more than welcome to jump in. Yes, sir. Uh, she can too. She can too. I mean, in addition to Sophia. Yeah. This is uh, this is the first time I think that we see uh, where this place, this mysterious place, where God will, in the future, choose to place His name. And I mean, it's three or four times it goes through that, and I just find that so fascinating that in all of our commentaries now we've got that parenthetical Jerusalem because we already know. Right. That he has chosen. Right. And has uh, placed his name there. Um, but it's a very important place. And it's unique from any other place on the planet. Right. Um, not only um, the place where he chose to place his name, um, but this is a place that he personally has identified with himself. Right. In the capital of Jerusalem. And our president has chosen, before all presidents before him, to actually move our embassy there, and several, five, six, seven uh, different nations have chosen to follow along that line. Um, from an end times perspective, this is important, because Jerusalem is the head of that, it's the apple of his eye. And uh, you know, this first occurrence here is, is a cool deal. Indeed, and uh, we were just talking with uh, Gloria earlier about um, planning to go to Israel, and going for Sukkot, right? how special it is to be there in Jerusalem, and, and uh, mm -hmm. she said you can really feel the, the presence of God there, and I agreed. I think right. you go, especially go to the Western Wall, which is on the, the edge of the Temple Mount, um, it's the retaining wall that supported the Temple Mount, um, you can you really do sense God's presence, and, and the mm -hmm. people there are, are seeking God, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's really spectacular, and it's so fascinating when you think about it that the Temple Mount all pieces of dirt on the planet is so unreasonably claimed by so many people. Highly contested. Highly contested. <laughs> um, and and it's really, it, it, the only way it really makes sense is that it is a place of significant holiness. It's a place, of, it's a place where the, 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 the world to come meets this world in a way. And um, so in that, in that regard, it's not surprising that there is a, both a physical and a spiritual battle going on to claim it. Um, and uh, it really is it really is amazing to to sense God's presence there to see his people seeking him there um, and that's uh, and that it reminds me of the um, uh, that one of the very beginning passages here it says to do that it actually says uh, where uh, let's see you shall go in bring elevation offerings etc um, only the place I don't know your God this is verse 4 of chapter 12 will choose from among all your tribes to place his name there. Shall you seek out his presence and come there? And that phrase, shall you seek out, um, uh, Yishai Fletcher in his teaching his Midrash this week, he talked about the idea that well, the same word for Midrash is the word used there. Um, uh, I think it's Tidrash Tov, Tidrashu, something like that. And Tidrashu. Uh, and uh, it's the same word for drash, or seek out, or investigate. Um, uh, he was saying, and also carries that the idea of like, an intense seeking. Um, there's like a, there's a certain intensity there, uh, and it's um, he was talking about the idea that like in our world today, God is hidden. It's so hard to see God. Um, God is invisible, and uh, and so He calls us to to seek Him diligently. 
but specifically seek for his presence. It's not enough to just like think about God or whatever, but seek for him. And he was talking about how like, you know, David made it a point to find a place for God's name to rest. You know, he, he sought out the temple. He, they had a tradition that he specifically went and sought out the temple because it was the site where Abraham offered Isaac. He wanted that specific location. And so this idea of seeking and finding Hashem um, is part of this whole concept, seeking out a place for his name, seeking out a place for his presence. And that's kind of what the temple was meant to be. He mentions that the, the temple is like a light to the nations. It was something that like, it was a physical um, representation of God's presence. And uh, it, it made it very difficult to deny the presence of God. Um, it helped their cool things, you know, like pillar of smoke that went straight up and, you know, didn't move with the wind or, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people could barely fit in all standing up and then miraculously they could all bow down. There's some cool traditions around the temple. Um, but yeah, which is the Sikh's presence. Yes, sir. I mean, you brought up the, the correlation, the intersection of the spiritual and the physical and the things that we eat. And in the, in the actual, in the name of the Parsha, in the beginning, the first word, Re'e, it's actually contained that very concept and that idea of Re'e is that it doesn't negate a spiritual or an invisible value, but it, but it must include a visible value. It says, so it says, see, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. It's not about the hereafter. It's not about a spiritual blessing or a spiritual curse alone, but it is something that is tangible. Uh, that same word is actually, we hear it in our prayers, it says, we, for we shall see him with a perceptive view. Mm -hmm. It's actually the same word, and actually it's a twisting, it's an English twisting of the, of the Hebrew uh, view, uh, because we, the idea is, as you said, God's invisible, we can't see him. And yet, this word means to see, to visibly see. It doesn't negate the spiritual. To know, we could have. He could have said, "Know this: I'm setting before you mm -hmm. a blessing and a curse." Mm -hmm. He says, "See, I'm setting be, be, uh, today before you today a blessing and a curse." Mm -hmm. So it is something that is that is visible in the physical world, not to negate its spiritual quality. Food has a spiritual quality, but not to negate. The spiritual quality, all of this portion is talking about the physically doing of things. There will be a place, a physical place, where God has his dwelling place on this earth. There will be a physical place that you shall come and celebrate these things before me. When you eat, there will be, it is to eat physical things. It's not to negate the spiritual, but it's, it's more than that. And that's where our Western philosophy gets off base is because... It's so easy when we're in suffering, although we aren't in suffering, generally. But it's so easy when you're in suffering to say, well, the physical doesn't matter. It's all about the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, this portion reminds us that it is about both. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, um, that actually ends up becoming a critique of Christianity by some. Um, reading this book right now. Twelve rules for life? Twelve rules, 12 rules for life. Jordan Peterson. Anyway, psychologist. He's not a Christian. He's not a religious person. He's he's influenced by religion. He, he sees it as very um, helpful because he, he views it as like a, uh, basically if it's lasted this long, it must be useful um, kind of thing. Culturally but useful. culturally useful. Um, but he talks about Freud and how basically uh, not Freud. I'm sorry, Nietzsche. Nietzsche and Nietzsche basically um, his his assault on Christianity, his well, rejection who, of God. He's the one who infamously said that God is dead. God is dead, right? That's the language he used. Um, obviously, he mis 
mistaken. But, well, actually, Nietzsche's dead. Nietzsche's dead. Nietzsche's dead. Yeah. God's still alive. Yeah. yeah. Funny how that works. Um, but the important thing about that, the reason why I bring it up, is because Nietzsche based a lot of his argument on, according to Jordan Peterson, on the on on the failure of Christianity to take note of physical suffering. Christianity practically ignored it. They they so were so uh, heavenly minded. They were no earthly good. Was kind of his argument. And that as a result of that, they didn't provide necessarily for the suffering of those around them because everything ended up being kind of turned into, well, we all go to heaven someday. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it's a shame that Nietzsche only got exposed to that brand of Christianity and did not spend enough time reading the Torah or spending time around Judaism because the, the scriptures do not paint a picture in which this world means meaningless and all that matters is the world to come or heaven. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. If, if he, Paul uh, makes it very clear God's intent is to raise the, the dead. There's no reason to raise our physical bodies if all we need to do is go to heaven. Um, but God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Why would you do that? So we I can thought, see it. So, right. <laughs> so we can live it. So we can experience it. He gave us senses for a reason. And I think when you realize that the entire universe is created and maintained specifically by God, you start to comprehend the concept that well, we are, we're not... We're not we're not pantheists. We don't believe that God's in everything and, you know, whatever else. But the idea that, in a sense, God is everywhere. Everything you see is, a, in a way, an expression of God to us. A message from God, you might say. And it's like, when we think about it that way, well, then all of a sudden, it makes all the physical not so mundane. It becomes very spiritual because it's an expression of God. I've got my father-in-law and my brother-in-law so um, two things come to mind first. Um, you know, if, if you look at the mailbox on the corner here of my, my driveway, it's an expression of me. I, I put the mailbox there. So it's a physical thing, and when you drive in, it should remind you of how poorly I do mailboxes, but it's still an expression of me, even though it's physical. To your point, I think that not only Nietzsche's day, but today, um, the Brisbane Church expresses this focus so much on heaven and a lack of focus on the physical that, I mean, it completely abrogated its responsibility based on the Bible and caring for poor. And the government of America had to step in and provide welfare. Other and doing a poor job of it, I might well, say. Well, you know, government normally does that. <laughs> you know, and this is why God had said, you as a people should care for each other and, in, 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 because you'll always have poor people. And what is it, and think about the name of the passage, right? Re'e, it's like it's the people you see, right? It's people who come up to you and you hear the request and you see the poverty and it's like, don't turn your heart, as Sophia was saying earlier, don't turn your heart to these people because um, God's brought them in your path on purpose specifically to meet a physical need. In fact, the book of James, or Jacob, Yaakov, says specifically um, he critiques people who fail to meet a physical need and try to only meet an emotional or spiritual need. He says, you, right, yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's a real shame because it's, it's a blasphemy of God's name to not meet that physical need when you have the power to do so. To tell someone, go be warm and be filled and not give them something warm to wear or food to eat is a mockery. Just a quick follow-up that um, in the end of this passage, um, God is going to say that if you follow all these commandments, you won't have any poor people amongst you. Right. A paragraph later, he says, you will 
always have poor people in your land. Therefore, you must not forget the poor, the Levite, the widow, the orphan, the convert, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the master said the same thing. You're always going to have poor people. So learn to care for them. Right. Physically. Physically. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, mentioned with Sophia's comment, this idea that when you do do that, then you are elevating the physical world. I mean, the, the, the sage's commentary about Abraham, and generically about some of these righteous men, is that they were extremely wealthy. Like, we live in a culture today that kind of like, almost like, hmm, you're, you're, you know, you have a lot of money, well, you must be evil. I mean, that's the only explanation for that, which is kind of bizarre <laughs> twisting. But anyway, that's kind of what we've ended up with. Um, and, and the tradition is very much the opposite. That, and really, I think the way the world works is more often the opposite of that. There are exceptions, obviously. There are very evil men who are very well off. But I think a lot of times the men who do really well are the ones who live out some level of goodness in their lives. Mm -hmm. They are good men. They treat others well. They work hard. They are careful with their money. And surprise, they end up with a lot of it. And, but the point is that, like, the reason I'm saying this is that wealth is not bad. Wealth is not a dirty word in the Bible. The, uh, ex the excess of wealth and a failure to use that wealth for God's service, that is the failure. That's the sin. Because if you're unwilling to be generous, no matter how much you have, then that's wrong. Um, and, you know, with whom much is given, much is required. Yes, sir. This is actually going back to the comment about the portion's name, because it was neat in the beginning of the Bhupnik Humash for this par parasha. It talked about C and touched it exactly like what Mr. Spurlock was saying, but I love how it flushes out the, the ultimate keeping of a mitzvah, or the ultimate expression of a mitzvah, is when you realize its value as, is, as if it was a physical object, which is such a cool way of putting it, you know? Like, because when we, if, if you think about that in all level of our faith, like our, I, uh, sometimes if you read like the, the Breslov commentary and stuff like that, they talk as if in the study hall with them is their Rebbe Nachman, you know? Like mm -hmm. it's as if they've, they've developed a faith that's so, its expression is so full that they physically feel like he's there teaching them. And like, I just thought how cool that is that, you know, with, we see it with our, the, the disciples of Yeshua, even after he was gone, that, that that was kind of how their faith was. It was so realistic to them that at any moment he could walk in the door, you know, and just how encouraging that is for us to see that every mitzvah that way, but even other parts of our faith, that it's uh, one of the things it says is basically like, that the mitzvot become as clear and self-evident as seeing a physical object with one's eyes. You know, so not just, not even even taking it further than a mitzvah, but just the existence of God, that like all the things that God's created, all the, the opportunities we have to care for a poor person, that we like physically see that God put that person there for us, or that we have an opportunity that's, that's, that transcends just the fact that like, oh, well, I read somewhere that I should do this, so I'm just gonna go ahead and do it. Right, absolutely. I think that, and I think that's the that was the point that Yisha Fleischer was getting at. To seek out is that like you seek out God in this world. You seek to bring God's presence into this world. You know, to expose it, to show it. I think that you know when you when you're obedient, you you've managed to um, to express God to the people around you. And that's it. I think that it's 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 not surprising to me that the failure of some religious people to um, appreciate or rather to recognize their, their responsibilities in the physical world led to Nietzsche saying that God is dead. Because he didn't see God. He didn't see God living in this world. 
And um, now, of course, he was very much wrong. But the point is that the people around him did it, were failing to to express God in a way that would show that he was very much alive. And I think that when you when you see, it's like I mean, you know, I love watching the movie Ushpazim because I love seeing the the characters in that sh- in that movie, religious with people in that movie, experiencing God, talking to God, treating him very much not like he's. Uh, not just like that he's a tradition or something we should, you know, things we should do, but rather that he's very much there. They, they have a relationship with God, and you, you see that. And I, I told Gloria, you're at the Western Wall, and it's like you can, you can see that. You can see these religious Jews um, who are connecting with God actively. Um, and, and I think, you, you, hopefully, you can see that amongst people in this room, you know, on a regular basis, that, you, there's, that there's, a, there's a link there they not, not only know he's real, they, they live him in this world. And as a result, they make him real to others. I've got my, oh. Just real quick, I mean, that's what the master said. The way you treat each other is gonna cause people to see God. Right. They'll know that you're my disciple because of the way you treat one another. You love each other outside what's normal. You, right. And that's, that's the key. Agreed. People will see it. They will know. I was reading an article last week. I was, that's why I was going through my phone. I was trying to find out who he was quoting. It's a man named Tom Holland. He'd written a historical book called Rubicon, The Last Year of the Roman Republic. And this Tom Holland is not a believer, but he, and he's been in love with the ancient world, and he's studied it, and he's written his books about it. But the more he studied it and looked into it, the more he's seen that the apostles and the apostolic scriptures, the change that it made, because the Romans and the Greeks were cruel. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there was no idea of a victim. Mm-hmm. And yet, and as a non-believer, looking at just historically, seeing the change that came out in attitudes and in responses to people and needs and those kind of things, that, that he saw that there was a huge difference between what the wisdom of the Greek mm-hmm. and the Romans created and what those of the Bible actually created as well and and it was a really interesting article about the the contrast he's not a believer yet but the contrast that he's seeing that that those who care for others who who see people in need who want to do something about it rather than just killing or getting rid of victims and seeing victimizing even more the victim as he said that need to take care of them and to respond to them yeah no i think it's definitely a Christianity, to, uh, critiquing them earlier, but um, members within Christianity have been extremely successful in this area. Um, you know, I think of, uh, oh my goodness, his name, uh, the guy who's always into prayers and miracles, Brandon Orphanage. George Mueller. Thank you. Um, I mean, you know, he, uh, he, he lived his life to take care of others, and you see... Uh, St. Teresa. Right. I mean, you see women, men and women who did amazing things. And An- Andrew Jordan, right. in his in the book, he makes the same point, talking about how... Oh, sorry. Jordan Peterson, excuse me. Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, One of those names. Jordan Peterson. He does this... Uh, he In this book, he talks about this um, that same concept, that, like, you know, we went from uh, feeding our slaves to lions to realizing mm-hmm. that's probably not a nice thing to do. You know? And Christianity changed the culture... To the point that, to, and influenced the Western culture to the extent that today, um, you know, the laws that we have against war crimes and a lot of other types of things are based on principles in the Bible and on and on our Judeo-Christian heritage. And um, 
And so you see that the positive side of, of what Christianity has done there as well. Um, but the uh, but that's but see that's what we're that's what we're always supposed to do. That's what Deuteronomy four, right? Deuteronomy four was you would live out these commandments, and the nations around you would say, "What wise people!" And then as as he says, "What what people has their God as close to them as He is to us?" So when you're obeying the commandments on a daily basis, you are exhibiting God's presence, um, even if you're not. Other people refuse to see it. Um, there is something. There's something about you that is that is unique or different, and um, and you ex- yourself are experiencing God's presence. I mean, I think about how many times, uh, uh, just thinking about how how many times you pray for something and you get your prayer answered. Well, even if let's say hypothetically speaking, that your prayers are so inconsistent, in, in, uh, indirectly linked to receiving something, right? You know, let's say it was going to happen anyway. You know, we're really, really into predestination here. Um, then. There's still great value there because you saw yourself ask God for something and God responded. You interfaced with God. Um, and that was something that uh, Yishai Fisher and uh, Shlomo Katz in their, their podcast a few weeks ago, they were talking about that idea, was Moses teaches us by his prayer that God says no to about going into the land of Israel about the importance of just praying. You just wanted to meet with God and talk to God. And even in he says no... The fact that you got an answer from the creator of the universe made it all worth it. Yeah, the, what we're talking about, um, about the emphasis of Christianity and everything, just really re-emphasizes how, you know, Moshe, we see over and over again how he's trying to implore the people to remember that, like, they need to keep these things. They need to let their actions speak for themselves because of how devastating the alternative is, right? And every single person that I've met that's uh, atheist or something like that, one of the biggest things they always quote is hypocrisy of what they see in Christianity. And it's them not laying out what they say they believe, you know? And so I just, I, I can see Moshe being so concerned that the people would fall into that. You know, over and over and over again, he's pleading with the people, like, please do these things. It's not just a, a matter of hearing them or seeing them or whatever. It, you have to do them. So that way we see what impact it has on the world when people follow God's Torah. Right, absolutely, and I think that it's interesting that he, in this portion, he also says, "Don't do what the nations do," and I think that you know the nations. You think about ne- ne- uh, um, pagan idolatry is is sort of like uh, it's it's religiosity and hedonism blended, really, right? Right. So the idea behind offering up offerings and whatnot is you wanted to get a result, a physical result. It was not a rejection of the physical world. It's usually quite the, the opposite, quite an embracing of it. Um, but it was almost all about that. It's like the relationship with God, eh, treating other people nicely, eh, whatever. Like the important thing was that it rained. You know, that's what we're going for. It's like so we got off. You know, so the old man has to get tied up to a stake and burnt. You know, mm-hmm. oh well. But hey, it rained that month, so we're good. We're gonna have crops. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like there's this. It's like this vending machine God, in which we do something, we get a result that makes us happy, and we don't have to do anything else really because. We don't really care about God. We just really want to get what we want. And that's sort of like the opposite extreme. And God tells his people specifically, don't do that. Don't treat me like that. Don't do the things that the nations around you are doing. You know, I'm not, uh, he's essentially saying, you know, I'm not a vending machine. I want that relationship with you. And I want you to do it the way that I told you to do it. There's a specific protocol for how you meet with God. But see, that changes the relationship. Instead of it being about, I, I do this act, God is happy with me, I do, don't, I do this act, and God is mad at me, 
Instead, it's almost more, it's so much more of the sense of like, um, like a king or there's a, you know, like, you know, the president of the United States. There's a protocol. There's a relationship. You do these things to meet with God. You do these things to be close to God. You do these things to experience God. It, it changes the, 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 the significance. It's no longer about getting something from God. It's about meeting with God, but knowing God. Um, but the, the, the people around them, uh, and the, but the, the temptation for the children of Israel was obvious. You know, hey, bad year for the rain. Well, maybe if we offered a few goats to this, you know, our neighbor's God, something might happen. Um, obviously, it worked at some point because, you know, there's weird stuff in this world. Um, even if it was just coincidence, it appeared to work. So they would, they were doing it with the goal in mind. But, um, but God says, don't, this is not how it works. This is not how you're supposed to live. Um, in fact, God, even in the last week's portion, contrasts Egypt, which was, you know, kind of easy to water, and the land of Israel, which we had to, you had to pray for rain. And it's like, but this was, this is what you're supposed to do. My eye is on this land always. Again, it's about, there's a relationship there. He's, he's calling us to something uh, greater than just simply satisfying our physical needs. I got my father-in-law over here. I was going to change the topic for you. Yeah, go Ready? for it. Um, I've always been taken by chapter, back in the 12 and beginning of 13. Um, 13, be careful to observe everything which I've commanded you, no matter how trivial it may seem. Do not add to it. Do not detract. And then we get into the false prophet, which I think is the uh, portion which uh, Shlomo called you up to read. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, that being you know, kind of prophetic since you're talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just... I guess when I read that this week, I thought, well, it, if you ask the church today, I think they would say that Judaism has added to its vote. And if you ask Judaism today, they would say that the church has taken subtracted away. or <laughs> taken away from the vote. And uh, I, I think that's curious in and of itself. Um, and certainly speaks to the way that both groups look at the scripture. Um, I don't know that I have any conclusions yet, but I found it curious that I, I don't want to do either one. I, I just want to be obedient, you know. And uh, I can't remember who got the Aliyah. I don't, I don't think it was you. It, it might have been uh, Joshua. Where you know? Oh, 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 by the way, it, just in passing, last verse. Nope. Don't cook a kid in its milk. Mm-hmm. And I'm done. God bless by Scott. I go sit down. I, I think, I think the prevailing wisdom in the church is we, we're going to ignore that because we don't know what it means, or we're just not going to play with that, or we're definitely not going to take a little tiny cow and boil it in its mother's milk. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, one way or the other. Go. But, but go, whatever, yeah. Um, sorry, kid, go, yeah. Thank you. You must be a mom. Um, so anyway, I, I just uh, I thought some discussion there would be cool because I just think it's great that the two major religions on the planet today see this, I think, from the opposite side. 
I think it's interesting, and I, I think that one of the important things, there is obviously maybe some disagreement, even perhaps between us and Judaism as far as which things are commandments of God and which are not. But Judaism does do a pretty good job, and they do strive for this to differentiate between commandments that are traditionally from God and commandments that are from rabbis. Traditionally from traditions. And so they, they don't treat them all that different in terms of their, their uh, significance. Yeah, you, you keep them either way, uh, a lot of them. There are some exceptions, um, but what you will see is, like the most common one I see is like when there's exceptions. It's like, so you need to, uh, you're, you're, you, you don't have the capacity to do this particular mitzvah for whatever reason. Well, it's okay, it's only rabbinic, so um, it's, you're more, there's more leniency there. Yeah, their, their normal take is, is in the negative. When you can't do it, then it's okay because it's rabbinic rather than scriptural. Scriptural. Yeah. So the point being is that they, they usually try to be very careful. In fact, this, this particular passage is so funny, the Rashi commentary, they're like, this is the teacher, you should not say that there should be five, you know, zizit strings instead of four, you know, as an example. Um, and the, the point is that um, uh, I think this sounds, sounds so much like our master. It's so interesting that in this portion, it specifically says that the... Uh, you know, the things that you give to the Levites, right? And so the, the interpretation of this, the Rashi commentary, is they talk about the idea that, well, you don't, the unowned things, you don't give to the Levites. They're not yours to give, so you don't require to tithe them to the Levites, which would include certain kinds of spices. Um, so in traditional Judaism, there's certain spices you don't tithe. Yeshua specifically talks to the Pharisees, Rashim, and says, hey, you guys are doing this. He doesn't tell them to stop. Right. He doesn't say, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't have a higher standard. He says, do that, fine. But also, more importantly, keep the things the scripture actually said in taking care of your neighbor and uh, showing mercy. And so I, the point that I'm getting at is Yeshua repeatedly, I think, assailed the Pharisees, not because of the higher standard, but because they, number one, they treated some of their higher standard as though it was from God. And as a result, they condemned those around them for not keeping the same standard and create division that was unhealthy. So I think if you read Paul, Paul over and over again, he, he respects people who have higher standard. You're, you're on the side that I think we all agree with and know. It's the other side. Which one? Taking a wife. Oh, well, I mean... On the, the church's on, perspective. Well, yes, on that side, I think that it's... Um, I think that if you read through the scriptures, God said, do this, don't do that. We should do this or not do that you know i mean yeah, i think I, I, anytime you decide well you know this is no longer applies today or um you know Yeshua did it so i don't have to uh um or or yeshua died and therefore pork is clean i'm not sure the connection there but okay um the uh the point is that that obviously in my mind is taking from god's commandments and um that the irony is there are some people who will read some things in the talmud that will talk about world to come and changes and yeah, they can be kosher pigs. How cool is that going to be? And like, oh, see, Messiah, it's specifically tied to the Messianic days. See, the sages knew once Messiah came, this stuff was done away with. And it's like, no, that's not what he meant. What the sages meant in the Talmud and whatnot is that the universe would change. Surprise, some of these commandments are tied very much to a specific time or place or gender or whatever. We're commanded to offer all these offerings. When there is no temple, we're commanded not to offer offerings. Read that this week. So as a result, you, in order to keep one commandment, you can't keep the other, so to speak. But that's okay because there's no temple. So therefore, it's a time-bound command. It doesn't apply right now. 
And the same thing can be true about physical stuff as well. I mean, if you know the pig were to chew its cud, hey, that's cool. That fits in just fine. And they found one. Huh? Well, that's creepy. Right? No, they did. But you know, as your father pointed out, the sages determined that they shouldn't eat it because it would be very confusing if they did. <laughs> and I, I agree with them. I in fact, the sages actually one of the things they're wrestling with today is uh, is uh, lab-grown meat. Oh yeah, and they specifically talked about that lab-grown pork. That lab-grown there there is actually some in Orthodox Judaism that would see lab-grown pork as being kosher because it doesn't actually come from a pig. Anyway, that's what I'm just saying. So you know your 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 uh, your your fake bacon is okay. Continues. Uh, part of this idea of the juxtaposition between we don't want to do any of this or you know taking things away versus does it really say that or adding to it is. In Deuteronomy 14, it says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourself to make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Now, some might interpret that rabbinically or in a traditional way as, you know, adding to that point, or not adding to, but interpreting also the point where it says the corners of your beard, say it's all part of, you know, mating in a hairline. For some of us, that's harder than others, but maintaining a hairline or whatever else. <laughs> At the very least, though, everyone should agree, you really shouldn't cut right there. Not for the dead, anyway. That's my point. My point is, though, that and that's the that's the problem with some of our some some that we would also consider in our faith, who actually say, well, no, no, we just don't do that at all. They don't even try and explain it away. Well, we can eat whatever we want. They don't try and explain it away with, well, that was about the dead. You know, they don't try to do that. At least some saying, well, that was about the dead, or at least trying to uh, uh, having an obligation towards the literal words first. Right. So the difference is, it's the literal word. In other words, if we can all agree on the literal, then we got a whole lot of the problem sorted out. The disagreement is over the literal word, not into the interpretation. Because right. like we say, the rabbinic interpretations of things, they're not disregarding literal word in almost every case. In almost every case they're honoring the literal word. An example is an, another example actually is in the in the add to in a way of provision. And verse 11 it says 14 11 says, you may eat all clean birds. Well, it doesn't even tell us what a clean bird is. It doesn't give us descriptive enough. By the way, this is this is this verse is actually my verse because my name is in it. Bird is sepil, which is a sparrow is a spur. I mean, that's what you say in Hebrew. So if you spell it out in Hebrew. That's the first letters of my name is is the same letters as as bird. I just think it's ironic. I like airplanes. Yeah. Anyway, you may eat all clean birds, but we don't know what a clean bird is. And it's actually in the Hebrew. It's, it's, it's tahar. What's a clean bird? And then it names not descriptive characteristics, but names some birds that aren't clean birds. So all of our, all of our uh, um, friends that eat chicken and turkey, uh, these are not listed as clean birds. They're extrapolated. So that's extrapolation. So it's an rabbinic interpretation. I'm talking about our messianic friends that go, well, I don't follow the rabbis. The rabbis don't know what they're talking about. I only follow scripture with a little word. Well, then don't eat chicken or turkey. Well, unless you can prove that it's... Exactly. You know, those Hebrew so, words know exactly what they are. Because turkeys and chickens are both omnivores. Well, so is a sparrow. But there's other omnivores listed here. It's very, it's very confusing. So, so it's not a descriptive title. It's not a descriptive thing. Instead, what we see is the intent to be obedient. And so the rabbi is saying a chicken and a turkey, well, that is like a sparrow, but it's not like a gull, and it's not like a hawk. What is the like? It's not a, it's not a physical characteristic, but if you see it, you know it. That's kind of it. So a chicken and a turkey, you go, 
well, first of all, turkey's hodu. Why would you eat that? That's thanks. Yeah, Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> but it, but it, it's what it looks like. It, it's what it, it's just something I know about. You know, I just kind of look at it and go, well, that's not one of those birds. Well, in the, in the, in the Bible, that's one of the things that's interesting about, about the birds. There is a lot of, the sages basically say, we don't know anymore what most of these words mean, which one's which bird and whatnot. Rashi comes up with definitions for a bunch of them, but even with some of them, he's like, it's this, or it could be that. We don't really know. And the point is, to my dad's point, if turkey and, and chickens are not listed here, from what we can, well, based on a traditional interpretation of which ones are listed. Traditional interpretation of the sages. By exactly. the sages, That's of which important. ones are listed. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so if you're not going to follow the rabbis, you can't eat turkey. Because you could run the risk that one of the birds here right. might actually be the Hebrew word for turkey or chicken because you don't know. Um, your exactly. English Bible is not exactly. good enough. But that's where the rabbinic... The rabbinic interpretation, I'm not saying it's always right, but the point is the rabbinic interpretation is, 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 a, is based upon millennia of careful care of God's word, not to negate it. Mm -hmm. We can't say the same thing about those who are new to the faith or relatively new if, we, if we're talking about Christianity and even, right? We can't say they haven't been careful to keep the word, literal, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't actually give them the same level of credence mm -hmm. that we would the rabbis who are reading this over millennia. And they're saying, not don't do it. They're saying, you may do it. So they're making actually a merciful provision. You may eat turkey or chicken. Which brings us right to James 3, which says, teachers have a, a much higher standard right. because they can lead others astray. So they're and, actually, and that's, that's exactly in this case, they're actually off, they're erring on the side of convenience. Leniency. I mean, yeah. and leniency. I mean, in Europe... It's like, of course, there are a lot of pigs, but you know, other than pig, pigs, there's only chickens. <laughs> you know, medieval Europe, there's not a whole lot we can eat. If it's meat, we're gonna have to eat turkeys, or a, even turkeys weren't around. Oh, chickens, chickens, or pigs. That's it. Cows are too valuable for milk. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but if you think about it, that, that I mean, the Judaism does teach this idea that leniency takes a higher uh, Jewish um, wisdom, higher wisdom in Judaism, because. To be lenient is seen as an ideal. However, to get there by sticking within the scripture, you gotta stay within the scripture. That's the that point. is the challenge. It takes more study and more research and more. That's my. Uh, that's it. Instead of just saying, "Wow, that's done." More diligence, um, as well as courage, because it's easy to say, "Well, just don't do any of it," because we don't know and it's dangerous. Instead, to spend time to go into it and just figure out well, what are the exceptions so that we can make it more doable for the common man is something that is considered to be a virtue. But it's interesting that enough in this passage, the week's Torah portion, um, in the Rashi commentary, it talks about uh, one of the things about um, sanctifying yourself in this portion is it mentions that, that language. And it says, we obviously don't need to sanctify yourself in the things that we know are commandments. This is in reference to things that are beyond that. You know, if you, if you, do, if you do more than that, then your job, or the people around you rather, their responsibility is to respect your efforts to live a holier life, whatever that might look like. And, you know, Paul talked to this over and over again. Yeah, your brother's, you know, these, he's nervous about eating meat. He knows a lot of it's offered to idols. He's not really sure what is or isn't. And he just doesn't feel like it's appropriate to eat, eat any meat at all. He's taking the role of Daniel. He's going to stick to the vegetables, and that's it. And, uh, and Paul doesn't say, you know what, that's stupid. We should really tell them what's for and make sure that they know better. Tell, tell them that they're trampling on the blood if they don't eat a good steak. Um, instead, he tells the people around them, look, respect them, give them credence, 
Maybe don't eat meat around them because you don't want them to get confused or to you don't berate them. Don't don't force them to violate their conscience. And he says to respect that, and I think that that's really um, really cool uh, that that uh, that you know Paul and the, and the rabbis kind of come on the same the same ground here because what you're saying is and the point I'm getting is that the Bible doesn't have a problem with doing more than the scripture says. The problem it has is when you take on the role of God and say, this is what you God said, and all of you have to keep it too. Or you can't do it. Right. Either way. Either way. And, the, and, the, and so the, um, and the, the ideal is in a community in which people give each other grace. Because when we saw the second temple, the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred, I think that's really what Yeshua is getting at when he berates some of the, the rulers of his day for critiquing the disciples for not washing their hands or not fasting on the right picking day or whatever it might be. Yeah, picking grain in the Sabbath. It wasn't necessarily, I think, that Yeshua had a problem with that standard. It was the fact that they were berating his disciples for that. It's like, first off, hello, I'm here. <laughs> I mean, I can pull my disciples aside in private and tell them, Let's not do that next year. Correcting other people's children. You know, yeah, that's right. But at the same time, it's also the sense that, like, you don't want, um, he had a problem with the division, I believe. He was, he was bothered by the fact that the, the, these religious leaders, in an effort to serve God, were missing out on love your neighbor. There was, and, and that, and, and that is ultimately more important. Um, and so I think that's something you get in, in that concept in this passage. Romans 14. Romans 14, right, yeah, the whole concept. The um, side to thing with this, talking about Yeshua and talking about this week's Torah portion, different topic, though. Um, I thought the signs this week, it hit me, like, for the first time. I hadn't thought about this. Um, it specifically says the false prophet comes and does signs, and you see all these miracles, and, uh, and God says he lets them do this because it's to test you to see if you really love God or not. Um, so Rambam... I always get those confused. Rambam, in his listings of Messiah, of what Messiah is going to do, he specifically says very clearly, Messiah doesn't need to do signs. Not important at all if Messiah does signs. This is supposed to be uh, something of a, a, a subtle uh, rebuke of Christianity yes, and a rebuke of Yeshua, it is. because it's like, well, you know, signs, <laughs> walking on water, turning water to wine, not necessary. Doesn't prove anything. We don't see, I mean, and you could point to this passage, really, and say, well, look, signs are not a sign of someone's, you know, legitimacy. What's ironic is Yeshua agrees. Yeshua specifically says repeatedly, an evil generation asks for a sign. You ask for a sign. I will only give one sign, the sign of Jonah, which is it's rather nice ironic. Sign. Pretty big sign. Because that sign has nothing to do with, uh, with, with, uh, with the, the miracles he was doing. That sign, the sign of Jonah, was really tied into what it says about Messiah. If I actually fulfill what the scripture says about Messiah, then you can know that I was Messiah. Which is actually what this scripture says. Right. If he prophesies something and it comes to pass, then he's good. As long as he doesn't supplement that with, let's go follow other gods. Right. And so Yeshua's point, I think, and over and over again, is he was actually berating signs. He did signs all the time. He doesn't say that signs are bad, but he was saying this, this trust in signs was dangerous and unhealthy. He had a problem with which it. Which is what this says. Which is what this says. Amen. Anyway, I just thought it was so funny to me that, you know, Christian Judaism, I think, you know, almost kind of feels like, Puh, you know, all these miracles that Yeshua did. And you point to that. Come on. 
you know, Dad, you read the Torah, and it's like, well, actually, it's the, uh, well, Yeshua agrees. <laughs> like, like, it was not his idea, uh, per se, to, to do these signs to, to convince people of his legitimacy, per se. He was doing it to supplement or to encourage people, but he knew, and he taught very clearly, that's not the point. When he speaks to the, the man on the road to Emmaus, he doesn't tell them, well, didn't you see all the miracles that Yeshua did? Instead, he goes into the, the Torah. It says he spends the whole walk with them, showing how through Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, the Messiah was to die and be resurrected. He, he explains himself through the scriptures. So he does exactly what this passage says to do, and what the, the later passage, uh, next, next Torah portion, talks about the same idea, that what's the real prophet from, from God, like Moses? Yes, sir. I'll come back to you in a second. Change the topic again? Or wait, just the same topic? Different. Okay, continue. So, just on where Yeshua, Can't hear you. Just where Yeshua was pointing out to his disciples about going into scripture. Well, you already know the scripture. You've been learning about it your entire life. Here, let me show you where I am in the scripture. Right. Nice. Mm. Right. Mm. That's right. Yeah, because he was. And that is the proof of Messiah. I know. Um, and that's the legitimacy of it. When we see him doing the things that scripture says. Yes, sir. So, Deuteronomy 14 has got the kosher stuff. And I missed these. I don't know if you all did, but, yeah. Right? Hey, did you see it? Bugs. Yeah, with the bugs. I mean, you can't eat any bugs. Whoa, wait a second. You know, if you go back to Leviticus 11, you can't eat the one bug. Some bugs. Some bugs. They got as knees. long as they got knees, right? If they can jump, then, then you're good. So, do you get any honey? Honey's good. Yep, yep. Locusts are good. Just so. pick out the knees. Only eat bugs that John the Baptist ate. There That's you right. go. Right. And why did he eat those? Because they had knees. Yeah, knees. Uh, I'm personally very grateful that God said we don't, we shouldn't eat bugs. <laughs> there's a lot of yeah, that's gross. Actually, it's really fascinating. I um I there's a there's a guy a TV celebrity um, Andrew Zimmer. He's actually kind of interesting. He goes and eats weird things all over the world. Some of the stuff we can actually eat. That's always really kind of yeah, exciting. Yeah. It's like I didn't know we could eat that. That's cool. It's, it's on our your... list. I can eat giraffe. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. that. I, know, I saw that this week too. <laughs> uh, it's like wow, that's so cool. That's interesting. Of course but you then you, you occasionally you'll see him go to these like you know really weird isolated communities and they'll eat something that's definitely not on the Torah yeah. list. And it's like God knew what He was talking about. That's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. He'll be eating it and he'd be like, mm, you can really taste the mud that this thing lived in. It's like, yeah, no, no, I'm good. But I think it's just, but it's so amazing to see yeah, that if, if, God's you watch, if you watch the chick flick, the Dalgo. It's an action film. It's an action film. The action chick flick. Um, you you learn about the locals. Even a woman in it. We the, can't even count. The Dalgo, the horse. The horse is a woman. Is the, the chick. We don't know that. Exactly. Is, is this, anyway, is this a Die Hard to Christmas movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's even less than that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in Hidalgo, we, we learned that <coughs> locusts are good. Yes, yes, and in dire times, I'm sure they are. Crunchy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Actually, you have to have fire and butter. Because they got to be, they sure got to be, they got to be fried in a pan. <laughs> then they actually do taste pretty good. I did. Actually, I've eaten lots of locusts. Hearing, yes. hearing the uh, hearing the description of the cowboy eating the locusts is pretty good. Mm. If, if you're Come down to chick -fil -A. at certain times of the year, like the waves of them in north and northern Congo, like 
swarms. I mean, they're everywhere, all over the ground, everything. And people eat them, but they cook them, and they're actually really good. Like you wanted to, or you? Had oh, yeah, no, no, we did. No, no, we liked it. Actually, we, it, it was a snack. It was a snack. Think of raisins with legs. Yeah. No, 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 you pick the legs off. My goodness. Oh, gross. The wings and the legs come off, and you fry it in a pan with butter. Locusts are good. Uh, no, actually, the, the, well, it's an ectoskeleton, so it's all attached. So, yeah, the, the, head's, the head's gone. Really, you're getting more, more of the stuff just inside the ectoskeleton. Here we go. It's good. The, this and recipe. You all know how to eat a locust. <laughs> go with God and the grace of God. Go with you. Just remember that cicadas are not the same. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. But careful. Crickets, I think. Crickets too. Yeah. All these careful. There the are. There are yeah, crickets that don't have. I was going to say that's the sages actually point out there are some in the that group that are not. The good thing about locusts is almost the big locusts are that kind. Crickets, you don't so know. We're going to try and do that exclusively for Oneg next year. Mm, there we go. <laughs> yummy. I'm going to have to find me some locusts. I will have to give it some. Yummy, ah. yummy, yummy. Coast um, locusts. I'm passing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> she so, doesn't like haggis. I'd like pancakes instead. But the <laughs> so the, uh, I'll take the chicken and turkey. I'll pass one. Right, right, right. Uh, but I think that's actually one of the things I think that really helped me to, to realize. Um, you know, our culture is so influenced by Judeo-Christian values, it makes a lot of these types of food things significantly less challenging. You go to some parts of the world and it's like, it says don't eat the blood. Okay, we, we can debate about whether or not that's the meat, that the blood that's in the meat, or you know, how you slaughter it, and if you kosher slaughter it or not. But there are some parts of the world where, I'm not joking, they take blood, we don't they, put it, they put it in like a porridge or something, you got literally like jello chunks of blood, blood that they're pudding. serving yeah oh. blood pudding whatever i mean it's like you're talking like you know there's certain types of animals that you know we're like well we, we obviously you wouldn't eat that well you live in that part of the world i mean that's a delicacy. that's all the, you know that's all they got you know whatever and it's like that's gross to us but you know so when god gave them these commandments it set them apart it made them different it made them i mean you mentioned you know the in europe they couldn't eat pork uh that's kind of a huge deal in europe um, I think that uh, when you're talking about about keeping um, the the kosher laws, in fact, what well, are the things you what are the things that set you apart as a culture? Language, food, holidays, clothes. God's got commandments for all of these. He's he's and that was one of the things that Yishai Fleischer was really talking about is Yishai Fleischer saying this this week's Torah portion is so much about this is about the nationhood of Israel. God is creating a, a nation for himself, and the, the temple is a place where the nation comes to worship God. It's, the, it's a nationalization of the worship of God. And we, were, and we read in the Haftar, we're actually all nations. All nations, right. But God wants a nation to serve him. And, and all nations, fine, but, but, blend, but in, the, in the future, those nations will be blended into one. They will all be grafted into Israel. Israel. To serve God, and so if you think about it, like that's exactly what God's doing. And this Torah portion is, is very much about that. You've got a religious framework, okay? It's one place we're going to worship God. It's how we're going to do it. You've got a, um, you've got specifics as far as what food we're going to eat as a people. Certain things we don't eat, certain things we do eat. At the very end of the Torah portion, it's a command. It's a holiday. We're going to go, um, we're going to go up and we're going to eat, you know, flat crackers for a week. 
and we're going to go and build huts outside we're going to all live in, and so forth and so on. And as a result, you create an identity, a national identity, um, that unifies the people. I mean, today, uh, it, um, let's just say I stick out like a sore thumb in uptown Charlotte, walking around with my kippa on my seat seat. And that's before I decided to ask for, you know, a couple of random Tuesdays in September off for holidays. Um, or October. Yeah, or October in, you know, other years. Um, or different days. Right. Yeah, yeah I'm saying. It's it's not why is it not always day. on September? Right. Yeah, yeah, right. right. Um, you know, and it's like, yeah, I, I'm in that weird camp where it's like uh, uh, my, you know, Saturday is never available. Sunday always is. That, or almost always. Not I work, always. I work overtime on Sunday. Yeah, it's kind of confusing. You know, how does that work? Um, you know, and it's, it's, but it's because God wanted to create people who were holy. He says that in this passage. You should be holy as children to God, right? And God wants people who are set apart for himself. It creates a, um, it not only makes them stand out to the world and draw them as light to God. At the same time, it also um, binds the people to God. It gives them, they're investing in God. They're making sacrifices sometimes literal and sometimes um, allegorical, for God. And as a result, that relationship is deepened and it becomes more important. Think about children. I mean, that's, they're absorbing all of this, right? I mean, my son is not even a year old. And we walk past a mezuzah and I go up and I touch it. And he does too. He understands that. He doesn't know why. Or maybe he does. He does have, he does not express why. He me. forgot. He forgot he's learning again. Yeah. He, he can't tell me why, but... Um, but he knows that's what we do. That's what that's what we do as a family, and and that's kind of that 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 unity that God wants. All right. So uh, last thing I saw was the whole empty-handed deal, uh, fifteen thirteen. When you send the uh, slave away, um, free from you, you should not let him go empty-handed. And in the prayers we. Uh, we see that, that uh, we're praying that God would not let us go empty. I think that's, uh, that's a neat deal. We get the we get the opportunity to actually play God as it were. Oh yeah. And, and demonstrate who He is. To your earlier point of expressing God Godlike traits, so that people can see who God is. The Absolutely. fact that. You know, he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. This is this is God. And as much as we do that, we don't. We're we're expressing. We're missing out on the opportunity to express his character to you. Another thing this week's I noticed this week's reading through it that it says to not let your heart be grudged. Yeah. It's almost like even if you still give it, but in your mind you're thinking, man, I really this you know random person had walked up and asked me. That's not good enough. God wants you to give it gladly, um, and thinking about it in that way is you are a conduit. God gave it to you because he intended to give it to them. That's right. Uh, Rabbi David Foreman, in one of his videos, he pointed out that when you send a word to slave away, when he's here, you're supposed to give him everything, almost everything, a little bit of everything that he has been a part of, which is what God did with uh, Israel and Mitzri. He, uh, got the Egyptians to give the Israelites all their gold and silver and 
clothing and dress. And a lot of almost all Mitzrayim's wealth, which was basically the, the product of Yisrael's labor. Right. So it's kind of like what you talked about earlier, being uh, kind of doing what God did for you. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent example. And thinking about the sages talked about this idea, we've talked about this before, probably that um, that when you uh, they take this idea, that almost like God is in your debt when you are generous to somebody else because you are literally doing God's job for Him, right. taking care of another person, and uh, and that uh, that does make that quite a, a quite a high um, not only a high mitzvah but it makes it like um, a real blessing to you. Like wow, you get to participate with God in and act as God. And yeah, you get to you get to play the role of God in this person's life. It's pretty amazing. That, that always makes me think of what Yeshua says about like the times that you've clothed naked and yeah. feed right. the hungry, and like you do it unto me. Right. You know, which is which is a, a beautiful concept. I I thought this week's portion. Of, one of the things that stopped me was like right there in a couple verses away from each other. In verse four of fifteen, it says, "There will no longer be any destitute people among." Them. And then a few verses later, it says, "There will always be destitute person people among you, and you should always give." And it was cool that Rashi explains that, and, and you kind of see it. The verse right after, "There will no longer be destitute people among you," it says, "However, if you listen to all that Adonai can do." So Rashi's explanation, kind of. Uh, satisfying both verses being true is, well, yeah, if everybody kept the Torah perfectly, then there absolutely would be any poor among you. But the, what we see here is you don't. And so there is destitute people among you, and that, that is our responsibility. I, this, uh, this week, I was listening to uh, this leadership thing from Torah Live, and, and one of the, the, the other thing they've mentioned about the, the content, like, I, I hadn't really heard it so clearly put, but you know how a lot of times the argument against religion is like, well, why would such a good God let such bad things happen, you know? Mm -hmm. There's like famines and death and destruction and hurricanes, all Wildfires. You know, and uh, yeah, and wildfires, and so uh, and this guy said like, well, the, the whole purpose of all of these things is so that we can all fix them, like that they're, they're for us. If you see somebody that's starving, like that's for you. You have to handle that. Like you get the opportunity to fix that. Like, uh, and I hadn't really heard it put so clearly before, but it was it was very uh, convicting to kind of hear it put that way. You know, sometimes I think that is it is hard to kind of understand. Like, yeah, why does that happen? Why do people's houses get like destroyed, but my house is fine? You know, or why does this happen to my neighbor or to their children, but it doesn't happen to me? And it's like, to think about it in terms of, well, the very fact that that happened around you means that like, you have now an opportunity given to you by God to help in some capacity, Amen. whatever it may be. Uh, similar to, of course, charity. That, and that's kind of the, uh, what we see in this portion, you know, that there is going to be poor among you, but you're not to withhold your hand. Like every, you, that is our responsibility: is to care for the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the Levite, and uh, and what a privilege it is to do that. But that um, they're, they're poor because of us, almost. Like it's kind of it sounds kind of funny to say, but it's like wow, that that really it makes you almost excited about the fact that God has blessed us with material possessions so that we can be that mm -hmm. that uh, that giver.
Mm-hmm. I think it affects the relationship because as Yeshua said, the Father and I are one and they will know your love because you will be one. And it's that relationship that we are to share with others so the relationship we have with him becomes a relationship with them which leads them back to relationship with him. So it's all based on relationship and sharing what he's given us leads us back to thankfulness to him which leads them you know it's all this cycle of, of becoming one mm-hmm. as as the father were one mm-hmm. and what greg said also reminded me there's those big fires in california in redding california and there's a large group of christians in redding and so they're getting criticized because well they couldn't stop the fires the fires are still there mm-hmm. and yet they're using them as opportunity to reach out and to share and to minister and to help and saying, okay, this hard thing is coming to our area, but we're going to use it to minister. Right, yeah. It is, um, it is ironic, I suppose. Uh, well, I think it's the power of God, really, that if you have much, then that's an opportunity to share and to give and to express God to others um, and to thank God for what you have. And if you have little, then it's an opportunity to pray and to ask God for help and to um, and to seek to and what you do have to take care of others and whatnot. So there's these, um, it really boils down to, as he said at the beginning, in all that you do, um, to all the glory of God. Final comments? Anything else? The only other thing was in this, uh, in the Gutnik Humash, there was this really cool thing at the very end of the parasha talking about the peace offering and its connection to eating meat on yom toes. Mm. I thought it was really cool. So there, there was a, an understanding at one point that the sacrifice was separate from the participation of the eating, so to speak. Like there was sort of two different things that you would do. So when one is gone, you can't do the sacrifice. You can still eat. And so you're kind of, it's almost like a half mitzvah. But then it was the altar Rebbe that came along and said, no, 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 these are basically the same thing. It's the same mitzvah. So by eating meat on the Yom Tov and by enhancing your joy, it's as if you're giving the peace offering. Oh, yeah, that's I like that idea. Uh-huh. Which is such a cool idea. So this upcoming, uh, up, upcoming Sukkot. Well, we, we just put in our little spot order, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's really special. Yeah, we, we do love to have, uh, to have meat on during Sukkot. Great way to end. I love to talk about eating good food. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Martin, would you mind praying for us to wrap up here? Father, it's uh, always uh, great to be with your people and an opportunity to talk about your word. Great to pray, Father, that uh, uh, out of the gratefulness of our we would seek to, uh, to obey you enjoy the happiness that you want to give to us as a result. We thank you for all you've done for us. We pray, Father, that you would use us to be a blessing to others this week. All these things in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, our risen Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.